Welcome to Travels Through Time, the podcast made in partnership with Unseen Histories. I'm Artemis, and in today's episode, we're uncovering a fascinating legal case that has been hidden for the last 50 years. Ewan Forbes was born in 1912 into an aristocratic Scottish family. He grew up in Aberdeenshire, studied medicine, started practising as a doctor in his local community and got married. Ewan's patients and his neighbours were aware that Ewan had been christened Elizabeth, but that apart from a few exceptions, Ewan had been viewed as a boy by himself and others since he was a child. Many were also aware that in 1952, when he was 40, Ewan had successfully, and with little commotion, corrected the sex on his birth certificate from female to male. The story you're about to hear is about what happened to Ewan some 15 years later, when his older brother died and the question of who was the rightful heir of the family's baronetcy sparked a legal battle which was to be of huge significance to the history of LGBT rights. It's a story that may surprise you and it will hopefully shed some light on the history and experiences of transgender people in the UK if you don't know about it already. I think it's the kind of story that reminds us why studying history is so important for understanding the present. My guest today is the academic Zoe Playden. Zoe is the Emeritus Professor of Medical Humanities at the University of London. She holds five degrees, including two doctorates. For over 30 years, Zoe has worked pro bono in the front lines of LGBTI human rights. She is a former co-chair of the Gay and Lesbian Association of Doctors and Dentists, and in 1994, she co-founded the Parliamentary Forum on Gender Identity with Dr Lynn Jones, MP. Her most recent book, The Hidden Case of Ewan Forbes, has been described by Baroness Helena Kennedy QC as a landmark work of history, law and social change. So it was a real privilege to speak to Zoe about The Hidden Case of Ewan Forbes just last week. Zoe Playden, thank you so much for joining us today on the Travels Through Time podcast. I'm so excited to talk to you about this book. Um, It was reading it was a it kind of reminded me why I love history so much because it it reminded me that history has this capacity to kind of uncover things or explain things um or challenge things in a way that's yeah just really powerful and um hugely interesting so thank you so much for writing it I know it wasn't that easy to write because as listeners um may know this book is called The Hidden Case of Ewan Forbes so would you like to tell me when did you first come across this story and why was it hidden? So I first came across the story of uh, Ewan in February 1996. I'd been at the High Court of Justice with uh, the team of lawyers that I work with and we'd been trying to get the birth certificates of trans people corrected and we'd shown evidence that in the past they'd been corrected without any problems and said that they ought to be corrected now as a matter of common sense and natural justice. And we'd lost, and we really didn't understand why we'd lost. But then, that evening, there was a phone call from a man called Terence Walton. He's going to come up again as Terence. 
Uh, he was um, a solicitor or the solicitor in the famous April Ashley trans case. And Terence said, everyone thinks that it's mine and April's fault that trans people can't correct their birth certificates, but it isn't. There was an earlier case before ours. And when we went into court, we were taken into the judge's chambers and shown this other case and told that everyone who knew about it was sworn to secrecy, which now included us, that all records of it had been removed from the public eye, that the press had been gagged because he said, there are some interests that it's more important to protect than the rights of individuals. And he'd say no more than that. That was as far as he'd go. So, you know, you try to avoid conspiracy theory. Uh, at that point, I was um, uh, a co-chair of the uh, uh, Gay and Lesbian Association of Doctors and Dentists and co-founder of the Parliamentary Forum on Gender Identity. And I've been working in LGBT uh, equalities since the late 1980s. Um, so with 16 years of experience, I guess, by then, uh, I knew that, you know, you had to be very careful of uh, conspiracies. But coming from such an authoritative source, we had to check it up. So I talked to colleagues who are trans community leaders, and we decided if such a case did exist, it would be, given these big interests, it would be about primogenitor, the law that says certain uh, titles can only be inherited by uh, a man and never by a woman. This is a law that still exists, if we can believe it and uh, that it would therefore be a trans man. So we needed to look for an aristocratic trans man. And we thought we'd begin by eliminating the people that we knew of. And one of my colleagues had the obituary of Ewan Forbes, um, faxed it through. And on the face of it, it looked as though uh, Ewan was intersexed, uh, just a natural um, diversity of human development. And it would be easy to eliminate his case. But when I went to look for it, it wasn't there. It wasn't in the University of London Law Library, where I'm a professor. Uh, it wasn't in the Signet Library in Edinburgh, which is the major law library. Uh, it wasn't in the National Records for Scotland. No one could find Ewan. When I got in touch with the Home Office, who keeps the roles of the baronetcy, uh, they didn't reply. And when my MP colleague wrote to the Lord Advocate, the head honcho of uh, law in Scotland, she got a reply saying that he knew about the case, but he wasn't going to say anything about it. And in fact, it took two years and the direct intervention of the Home Secretary for this hidden case finally to be revealed. It really had been made as secret as possible. It's extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary. How did you go about researching a piece of history that was so hidden? It must have been a huge task. Yes, well, I'm sorry to say, Artemis, that I rather put it off because um, by 1998, we'd uh, already won some major victories. Uh, in particular, we'd uh, regained employment rights for trans people in a European case. And as well as the day job, I was busy working with, you know, government departments to improve healthcare and prisons and education. Um, and on the whole, things were going well for trans equality. And we thought that we were on, you know, uh, 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 an even keel and that things would just get better and better and better as they did for lesbian and gay equality. But then by 2016, it looked as though things weren't doing terribly well. 
I knew the primogeniture was an issue, but I thought that had been resolved uh, in 2013 when the succession to the Crown Act removed primogeniture from the monarchy, because you know we only have a queen because there were no eligible males to take the throne. Um, but things were getting better. I knew there was something in there about primogeniture. So I dug out Ewan's case and uh, went through the 500 pages, line by line, word by word, to reconstruct what had happened. And that was really quite shocking. Mm. So then I worked back to 1886, which is the first medical uh, description of uh, trans people uh, to see what had led up to Ewan's case. And then I worked forward from uh, Ewan's case to the present day to see what the consequences had been. So all in all, it was about, I don't know, five years of research and perhaps 300,000 um, uh, words of research, which then turned into the uh, uh, the book, The Hidden Case of Ewan Forbes. Mm. And we're going to find out why and how this case was hidden. But perhaps you could tell us a bit about Ewan before we um, go to your chosen year. Who was he and um, where did he grow up? So uh, Ewan was born in 1912. He was the youngest child of an aristocratic Scots family, the Forbes Semples, who lived in Aberdeenshire. They had a 20,000 acre estate, which included Craigavar Castle, which is still there and iconic and well worth visiting and a manor house at Fintree, which has uh, uh, gone now after the war. When Ewan was a child, his mother could see that even though he'd been assigned female at birth, he clearly was a boy. And uh, when he was uh, uh, in his early teens, to avoid him going through the wrong puberty, she quite remarkably took him on a tour of medical facilities in Europe. At that point in the late 1920s and early 30s, uh, synthetic testosterone and oestrogen were being produced. And in Berlin, uh, Magnus Hirschfeld had an astonishing uh, institute for sexual science where he was giving affirmative care to trans people. And Ewan remarkably uh, got early testosterone, didn't go through the wrong puberty, and grew up as a boy, lived as a man. All unproblematically, none of this was difficult. It was hard to access because it was experimental, um, but it wasn't strange because at that point, and this is a key thing, at that point, what we now call being trans was medically classified as a variation of sex development, an intersex condition. And so there was no reason to penalise someone for their biology, no reason at all. You and then... Uh, became himself uh, a doctor, a local GP in the market town of Arford, where many patients still remember him. And uh, then in 1952, he fell in love and wanted to get married. Now, all of this sounds idyllic, doesn't it? As though Ewan had a wonderful life. And in many respects, he was hugely fortunate. But this astonishing medical care that he got came at a price. The Forbes Semples were distinguished. They weren't a grand family. They were dukes or marquises, but they were distinguished. Ewan's grandfather was an intimate friend of Queen Victoria. His mother was a friend of Queen Mary. His father was an aide-de-camp to the king. And that meant that they had quite a high public profile. And his father in particular was a stickler for family duty. This meant that on some occasions, Ewan was forced to dress 
as a girl and appear in public as female. Now we would regard that as being, I mean, absolutely abusive. And we know that uh, the effect of that kind of uh, sudden discontinuity uh, would be absolutely um, appalling uh, for Ewan. In fact, it gave him a lifelong aversion to being in the public eye. Very cleverly and brilliantly, really, he developed a strategy for managing this discontinuity between his private and public identities. Um, he created a Scots uh, traditional dance team called the Dancers of Don, and he always danced the male part. So that from the age of, um, well, in those days, it was 21 before you were an adult. Uh, so from then onwards, uh, whenever he appeared or had to appear on public occasions, it would be as part of Dancers of the Don, dressed in uh, male traditional uh, Scots costume. And he used this professional role as a means of managing what was a very difficult uh, tension between private and public identities. You know, and I think that was also why he enjoyed being doctor, because it was a professional role where you know, people didn't have any right to um, think about his personal life. He just wanted to live quietly and privately and happily. So in 1952, when he fell in love, he was suddenly in the public eye again, because to marry, he had to correct his birth certificate. I guess the next big shock is that that was relatively easy in those days. In England, you just took your doctor's letter um, down to the Central Registry Office and corrected your birth certificate. In Scotland, it was a little bit more complicated, but it was still pretty straightforward. And all of this is the first big shock about Ewan's story, I think. But in the past, right the way up until the 1960s, trans people self-identified, got affirmative medical care, corrected their birth certificates and lived in complete equality. There was no fuss, no bother, Okay, it was not usual, um, but it was no more regarded as no more unusual really than being left-handed, for example. Um, and it was regarded as someone's private business. It wasn't a sort of focus of speculation and antipathy and attack that it's become today. One of the most interesting things as a historian, I think, is to see how a cultural amnesia can be created around a set of circumstances so that now it seems impossible to believe that all trans people just simply found their way to medical care, got their birth certificates corrected, and lived without any of the awful penalties that the current Gender Recognition Act uh, visits on them. Mm. And that was going to be my next question, actually, was how, how typical would you say Yitton's experience was? at that time from what you're saying it sounds like it was fairly typical yes no no it was fairly typical um i mean very typical really uh, ewan was untypical because he got his treatment so early um and on the continent but in the uk uh, the ordinary trans person uh, would just you could buy at that point you could still buy uh, synthetic hormones uh, and self-medicate uh, you would find your way almost certainly to somewhere like 
Um, there was a surgeon called Lennox Broster at Charing Cross Hospital who provided affirmative medical care, uh, or to any one of a number of uh, clinicians who worked in that area. Um, and after you'd had whatever elective surgery or other medical care that you wanted, then they would write you a letter to say that understandably a mistake had been made at birth in categorizing you in the wrong sex and would the registry office please correct your birth certificate and the mm -hmm. registry office corrected your birth certificate. At the time uh, it was believed that there were far more trans men than trans women. Trans women were believed to be a rarity um, but this is just a matter of visibility. Trans men were visible because there were some uh, famous athletes like Mark Weston in the 1930s that drew press attention. Um, in the same way, you know, there's this uh, notion that suddenly uh, we've now got lots and lots of um, uh, trans boys that we didn't used to have before. And that too is simply a question of visibility. And the visibility of trans people shifts uh, through historical periods. Mm. But yet in those days, it was, everything was easier. Mm. Well, you've set the scene beautifully for us. So, um... I'm going to ask you the question we ask all of our guests on the podcast, which is that if you could travel through time, what year would you visit and why? Oh, 1967. Because in 1967, two events occurred that were going to disenfranchise trans people worldwide from then on. So it's a keystone moment in trans history. So before we visit our first scene, I think perhaps um, it would be great if you could give our listeners a bit of context about um, what's about to happen. What has happened in the run-up to 1967 that is going to change Ewan's life? So you'll recall that Ewan comes from an aristocratic family, which had a couple of titles, and the key one for Ewan was a baronetcy. Uh, the Forbes of Craigabar baronetcy which was limited by primogenitor. Now, I think it's just important to get a sense of the weight of primogenitor. And I think it's important to emphasize that this law still exists. Primogenitor says that titles and estates, certain titles and estates can only be inherited by a man, never by a woman. And this is an astonishing piece of systemic sex discrimination. Um, archaic and anachronistic in the present day, but still massively destructive. So just to give a sense um, of how destructive, this is what uh, one uh, person told me. She said, I knew I absorbed it with my mother's milk, but as a girl I was a disappointment. Just a piece of human flotsam to be fed, clothed, housed, for the intention and purpose was to have a boy. Only boys counted, only boys were valued, only boys were desirable, lovable and precious. Girls were just a burden to maintain in the short term and an anxiety for the future. For I knew certainly and automatically that when my father died, I would have to leave my home and the belongings I thought were mine. For as a girl, I was always already disinherited. Mm. So in a primogenitor context, being male or female was absolutely crucial. Well, Ewan married in 1952. He lived very happily with his wife, Patty, until the death of his brother 
1965. And then the Forbes of Craigavar baronetcy uh, became vacant. That needn't have been a problem. Ewan was, after all, uh, male. But at his brother's funeral, a cousin turned up out of the blue, cousin John, and told Ewan that he was going to challenge him for the baronetcy because, he said, you're not a real man. Ewan first of all tried to appease John. He handed over the whole of the estates and family heirlooms to him to, uh, in condition, on condition that John wouldn't then challenge the baronetcy. And again, I can only urge people to go to Craig of Our Castle, go up to the top and look out and think as far as the eye can see, that's what Ewan handed over to try to avoid any kind of conflict. What he didn't know though, was that having got all of the assets, the financial assets, John was going to continue to, um, uh, get, to try to get the title. And what then followed was a series of really awful um, events. Ewan has an older sister, Margaret, that he's estranged from. John approaches her, uh, says he'll pay her debts, uh, which were considerable, if she'll write a letter saying that to her certain knowledge, Ewan was and always has been female. Margaret does this. Ewan eventually finds out, is devastated. He reconciles with his uh, sister. She goes and sees the cousin and they negotiate a deal that says, okay, um, the court hearing can be held in private, John won't give up the challenge note, the court hearing can be held in private if Ewan will submit to a medical examination by John's experts to determine his sex. I mean, you can't think of anything more humiliating and degrading, but that was what John insisted on. Otherwise, he was going to go to court in public, and that would obviously have been devastating for the family. Tragedy follows tragedy after the reconciliation, after John has, um, uh, has agreed to the trial in public, it looks as though Ewan's uh, home and safe because Margaret could just simply stand up in court and say, oh, well, I take back everything I said in the letter. I didn't really realise why I was being asked to write it. And anyway, I was paid for it and I just, was, just wrote what I was told to write. And John's case would be destroyed. But just as... Margaret was driving to see Ewan along a road she'd driven along a hundred times before in that sturdiest of vehicles, a Land Rover. At a dangerous bend, she met a lorry and a car and was killed instantly. So 1967 begins for Ewan with a background of tragedy. His brothers died, his sisters died, he's been forced into a medical examination that is degrading and humiliating. And at the start of 1967, Ewan is waiting to see what the medical report will say about him. And that is, in fact, our first scene. It's the 5th of January, 1967. Um, before you tell us what the conclusion of Ewan's medical report is, could you tell us a bit about what Ewan had to go through, because I think it's important to kind of confront how dehumanising that process must have been. Um, he's sat, he's taken to a hospital, he's been promised that there are only going to be two 
doctors in the room. Is that right? And then he arrives and there are like seven people, students and all about to watch him undress. So... Yes, I mean, really quite appalling. Um, he went to Edinburgh uh, Infirmary and to be examined by Professor Strong. They had a legal agreement as to the number of people who will be present. When Ewan goes in, the room's crowded. We don't know who cleared the room and reduced the number of doctors, um, but uh, uh, Ewan was then put through uh, a gruelling examination. First of all, there will have been a personal history that was taken, uh, and that will have included all sorts of intrusive questions because this is a question of someone's sex. There will have been an interview schedule used that will not only have asked about the usual childhood illnesses, but about developmental issues, toilet training, bedwetting, tantrums, phobias, obsessions, stealing, delinquency, nail biting, thumb sucking, head banging, hair twisting, hallucinations, delusions, sports, and game playing. Then they'll have asked him about his sex history and wanted to know about masturbation and masturbation fantasies, erotic and romantic daydreams, dating, petting, and lovemaking, menstruation, breast development, erotic zones, erotic stimulation, and orgasm. I just, unbelievably intrusive. And yeah. just to remind us, this ordeal that Ewan goes through is going to be the ordeal that will be repeated for trans people for a generation. Mm. After the history taking, there will be um, a physical examination and uh, uh, Professor Strong will have had the usual things there, a, a tape measure, a reflex hammer, his stethoscope, a flashlight, lubricating jelly, rectal gloves, and uh, unlike other men, Ewan will have had to endure the humiliation of putting his feet in stirrups, you know, the same ones that you have when you have um, uh, uh, an examination of any female genital area. And every part of him will have been judged as being male or not male. Every part of him will have been looked at uh, for uh, what was regarded as abnormality. He will have been measured and classified really like an animal, not a person. Uh, really very, very shocking. I mean, it's difficult to think how emotionally damaging that is, mm. you know? And I think starting to think about Ewan's emotional palate it's something that we can't quite do as historians because we have to stick to the verifiable facts. But it's impossible not to feel that that difficult times that he had as a child when he was forced to appear in public as female, this examination must have been absolutely triggering of mm. that. He must have been feeling the same sense of helplessness, anger, despair. Um, he must have had if not then, then afterwards, his sense of grief and loneliness and exhaustion and mm. alienation uh, that we know leads to, you know, anxiety disorders and severe depression. Uh, so, I mean, a terribly damaging experience for him. Yeah, it's it's really hard to imagine. I wanted to talk a bit about you. You mentioned about um, how this kind of uh, examination and um, scrutinising of transgender people was to become really quite commonplace. Um, and it's related to the new, a new kind of trend in so-called medicine, 
that was um, coming on the scene in the 1960s. And I think that's a really important part of the story that I think you should, uh, perhaps our listeners would like to know about. Oh, yes. Well, Ewan, remember, was a doctor. And as a doctor and a trans man, he would have an inside track and be watching out for what's happening in medicine. And very, very bad things were happening in medicine. When Ewan corrected his birth certificate in 1952, being trans was medically classified as an intersex condition, a biological intersex condition. That's broadly where medicine's come back to now. Um, but uh, in the 1950s, there were a couple of uh, doctors that were starting to take a different view. In the 1950s, a man called John Money uh, in the US uh, started to claim that sex and sexuality that could be altered by using psychiatric methods. In 1962, the first gender identity clinic was set up at the University of California, Los Angeles, uh, to cure so-called uh, trans people, gay men and lesbians with a range of um, uh, processes, which included frontal lobotomy, uh, ECT, chemical aversion therapy, uh, electric shock aversion therapy and psychotherapy. And two people in particular began to stand out. John Money himself and Richard Green, who'd been at UCLA. And Money and Green had started to form a kind of a coalition to redefine trans people as mentally ill, to say that being trans had nothing to do with a variation of sex development and the people, trans people were, the technical term is floridly psychotic. Absolutely deluded in one particular area of their lives, although they might be perfectly successful uh, in absolutely every other area. Now we don't believe that anymore. But at the time, there was a turf war in the US in medicine and the psychiatrists won. So what Ewan knew was that he had the John Money and Richard Green uh, axis as a threat. By 1967, Money and Green have formed a coalition with a psychiatrist called John Randall at Charing Cross Hospital, and they're preparing to launch uh, a massive conference uh, which is going to take over the care of trans people in the UK um, and declare that everyone, all trans people, mentally ill. Now, I think it's, again, important as a historian just to reflect on the nature of monstrosity. Money and Green did monstrous things, but they weren't themselves actually monsters. Monsters or people who do monstrous things, they don't look like monsters. I knew John Money, I knew Richard Green, and unless you were their patient, they were perfectly amiable, pleasant social people. You know, John was a bit too fond of um, uh, having a pornographer in his little retinue, but that aside, you know, uh, they were sociable and affable. And yet they did this appalling, monstrous thing of reclassifying trans people as mentally ill. And this is what Ewan was terrified of. Mm. Because if he is now reclassified as female, then his marriage to, to Patty is perjured. Mm. They themselves are reclassified 
as lesbians who've entered a perjured marriage and the sentence for perjury was and is two years imprisonment. Ewan would be struck off from the medical register, their lives would be ruined. Um, this is a very, very big stakes question for Ewan. So on the 5th of January, 1967, when the medical report came through the letterbox at Brooks Lodge, where Ewan lived, I wonder to myself, how did he even pick it up? How, where did he open it? Did he open it alone? Did he do it together with Patty? Did he do it immediately and tear it open to see what the news was? Did he leave it for a while because he couldn't bear to? We have no idea how he approached these things and what his emotional reactions were, but what we can be sure of is, all of us can imagine a letter coming through the door that might contain the very worst news or might contain the very best news. And that was the situation that Ewan was in on the 5th of January, 1967. God, it just gives me goosebumps just thinking about it. So what did the, what was the conclusion of the medical report? What did the letter say? The letter said, Examination indicates that Dr. Forbes' sample is a female. Yeah. I mean, you've outlined so well how devastating that must have been for you, and we can only imagine how it must have felt. Uh, let's um, move on to um, the second scene that you would like to visit. This is Ewan decides to fight, basically. What does he decide to do? Ewan decides to fight. The thing is that none of us know how we'll respond if we're faced with overwhelming violence. What will we do? Will we fight? Will it be flight? Or will we freeze and appease? Well, first of all, Ewan went down the freeze and appease route. He tried to appease John. Now that hasn't worked. And now Ewan has not only his life to fight for, but Patty's as well. And so he concocts a plan. I think myself that he may well have concocted this plan in advance as the absolute, in the worst circumstances possible, if he was declared female, that he'd have a, a route through. What he did effectively was immediately he got the letter. He came to London, to Guy's Hospital, and saw Professor Polani, the major uh, expert on intersex conditions. Either Polani uh, gave him or uh, showed him how to acquire a medical sample of testicular tissue. And Ewan audaciously told this story. He said, that Christmas, I had a very bad attack of bronchitis. I've always had a weak chest and this was a very, very bad attack indeed. And um, after a very particular, very strong coughing fit, suddenly a testicle descended and lay in my inguinal area, in my groin. And so he said, um, I uh, uh, was very concerned when I read Professor uh, Strong's report saying that I was female with some male uh, characteristics and suggesting that I might have congenital adrenal hyperplasia because that's really quite a dangerous disease, one can die. Um, so immediately I went and took a biopsy and sent it off um, uh, to be checked. Now Ewan 
deliberately commits perjury and presents falsified medical evidence in court in order to counter John's claim. It's a complete last ditch back against the wall, an absolutely audacious um, uh, argument, which he manages to maintain because he knows that he's going to have to prove himself definitively, at least definitively not female. Mm. That's his aim. He's got all of his medical experts set up. He's um, uh, persuaded them that uh, this testicular tissue is his, or at least he's given them no opportunity of showing that it isn't. And he's broadly, as we might say, he's burnt the straw dogs, he's ready to go to court, he's ready to lose everything. Because, you know, when you're going to lose everything anyway, then you're going to fight for your life. Mm. At the same time, I think we need to reflect on what a difficult thing and a difficult measure that must have been for Ewan, because Ewan was deeply religious. He was a Presbyterian, an Episcopalian, uh, is uh, uh, the group that he belonged to, and he was an elder of his local kirk, as the Presbyterians call their church. He had a very high level of faith, mm. and to, on that basis, to commit perjury, effectively to lie in the face of God, very, very extreme indeed. So he was not doing this with a light heart. Mm. He was doing this to save, really, I think, to save Patty's life. He was willing to sacrifice everything, including his own peace of mind. And when he went to court on the 15th of May, 1967, when the court case started, it must have been with a very heavy heart indeed. I just want to dwell on this for a second because it, struck me that it's a moment of enormous personal significance to Ewan for the reasons you described, but also because, like you say, his his back is against the wall and he is fighting against what, for one person, must have seemed an overwhelming foe. You've got, like, a, a large section of the medical profession. You've got the, the kind of theory of primogeniture and all of the various institutions and people who are set up to protect that. It's... um. It's really extraordinary what he does. He's really, I just, I, I just find it a very moving moment. He's like, no, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna just accept that this is my fate and this is what you've said that I'm female and the game's up and I've just got to like, you know, throw my hands up in the air and say, oh, never mind, I had a good run. He's like, no, this is, this is who I am and I will do everything I can to protect myself and my wife and my life and my way of, you know, the life that I've set up for myself. I just think it's incredibly powerful. Yes, it was. Um... Uh, quite remarkable uh, that he dared to do it um, and he did dare to do it and in the end you know he won he was very very lucky because of course this is 20 years before DNA testing is available so there was no way of proving that mm. the samples that he presented uh, weren't his uh, but it was a cost the court case itself was again massively intrusive degrading, humiliating, and the worst part of it was that Patty herself was put on the witness box and in the most astonishing, I mean, disgusting is the only um, word one can think of, the most despicable incident. Uh, she was forced to account to the judge for the way in which she and Ewan 
uh, had sex and her response to that mm. most prurient, appalling uh, piece of legal questioning that I've ever seen. And it struck me as well that this this questioning, uh, and we're going to, I know in this scene you want to visit another case that um, it's a similar thing uh, happens, um, but this questioning, it kind of, it confuses so many it shows how confused the understanding was about gender identity uh sexual orientation well, you know that they, they were they seemed to imply that because they wanted to know about how enjoyable she found the sex with her husband as if that w- bared some relevance on whether he was a man or a woman i mean it's, it just shows how confused the thinking was yes yes and unfortunately still is in many locations uh in the uk today But yes, absolutely. Coincidentally, on the 15th of May 1967, as Ewan's trial commenced, another court case was initiated in London. And this is the much more well-known court case of uh, April Ashley, the uh, trans woman uh, model and actress. April had uh, married or had gone through a ceremony of marriage in Gibraltar with a man called Arthur Corbett, who was the son and heir of Lord Rowanham. And the relationship hadn't worked. April was really quite upset because uh, Arthur had promised to give her a, a villa in Marbella and he hadn't handed it over. And so April's solicitor, Terence Walton, said to her, you should sue Arthur for maintenance. And this for me is one of the big unsolved mysteries, uh, really. April hadn't corrected her birth certificate. She'd had her um, uh, medical treatment abroad. Uh, We don't know why she didn't correct her birth certificate. Perhaps um, her clinician wouldn't give her the appropriate letter or perhaps a letter from uh, a clinician uh, abroad wasn't acceptable to the central registry office. Mm -hmm. Or perhaps like so many trans people at the time, It was an additional trouble, time and expense, and she had no idea of the significance that would be attached to it in the future, and so she just didn't bother. But because she hadn't corrected her birth certificate, the ceremony of marriage that she went through with Arthur was void right from the start. There was no marriage, and Arthur could just have ignored um, that request for maintenance. Instead, he began... uh, an action for divorce. And as Ewan was walking into court, Arthur was filing his petition for divorce. Why ever did Terence Walton advise April on that course of action? April, of course, may not have realized that the marriage wasn't valid. Many people don't. Many people still think that there's a a kind of a common law marriage, which of course there isn't. But Terence, as a solicitor, must have known that April had no legal claim on Arthur. And I still wonder why he gave her that advice. I never had an opportunity to ask him, unfortunately, Um, but it's one of the big unknown questions. Mm -hmm. And the strangest thing of all, in a way, in all of this, is that this wasn't the first case of its kind that had been heard. Just a few months before Uh, April's case is finally heard in court. Uh, Another case, Talbot versus Talbot, uh, another um, marriage between a trans person and a cis person. 
without the trans person having corrected their birth certificate that was heard and dismissed out of hand. But in April's case, that doesn't happen. And we wonder why. We wonder that why instead of it being dismissed out of hand, a 14 day trial is created and that is used eventually to disenfranchise trans people. I argue in the book that the reason is to protect male primogenitor, because this is the consequence of Ewan winning his case. Hello, it's Artemis. For some time, we've been working with the visual historian Jordan Lloyd, and we've been telling you about his fascinating colorization work. Well, recently, Jordan has launched his new project, It's a website called Unseen Histories, which showcases a broad range of fascinating historical material. You can read feature-length pieces there about female fashion in the Victorian era, or beautifully illustrated extracts from books like Susan Denham Wade's A History of Seeing. For those of you who have enjoyed Jordan's colourisation work in the past, there's a full range of remastered photographs from the archives of the Library of Congress. It's history for our times. Do have a look for yourself at (laughs) unseenhistories.com. Yes, so that leads us on perfectly to the final scene um, that we're going to visit uh, in 1967. In some ways, the conclusion of this story and in other ways, uh, just the beginning. So would you like to tell us where we are on the 29th of December, 1967? So on the 29th of December, the judge has finally made a decision. It's taken him the best part of a year to do that. And to be fair to the judge, It's been a confusing scenario. The way in which you decide someone's sex was at that time in the judge's decision, he said the prime consideration is someone's psychological sex. That was what everyone in the courtroom agreed. All the medical experts agreed that you decide someone's sex by their psychological orientation. You would then also look at their internal and external genitalia And finally, you could look at their chromosomes, but everyone knew then, as now, that chromosomes aren't determinant, uh, that they're variable, that the thing that we think of as genetics as being fixed and solid is not fixed and solid. This is why we now have a biosocial psycho uh, model of care, because we know that human bodies are far more fluid than uh, uh, we used to believe they were. Uh, So Ewan wins his case on the basis of having a psychological sex. The judge says he's not female. Um, He declares uh, Ewan to be a true hermaphrodite in whom male characteristics predominate. It's going to be another year before the Home Secretary actually hands over the title to Ewan. But meanwhile, simply agreeing that uh, Ewan could have the title, that a trans man could inherit a primogenitor title, causes a constitutional crisis. If a trans man can inherit a primogenitor baronetcy, then a trans man can inherit the crown, because remember, the crown is still subject to primogenitor. This is hugely problematic. The focus of constitutional law is on securing succession to the throne, You need to know who the next heir to the throne is going to be for political stability. But now you might think you know who the 
uh, next heir to the throne is, but they could have an older sibling, assigned female at birth, who's trans and claims the throne instead. Suddenly, security of succession and political stability are threatened. And the cure for this is going to be April Ashley and her case, Corbett versus Corbett. Ewan causes a problem for the British establishment, the problem of primogeniture. April, I advance, is used to solve that problem. The judge in April's case creates a legal sex test of his own devising. It's not medical, it's not scientific. He completely ignores senior scientific um, um, authority in creating his sex test. He creates a sex test that declares trans people are mentally ill. April is mentally ill. She's a homosexual transvestite, he says, who's deluded. Therefore, all trans people are similarly homosexual transvestites who are deluded. The decision is based on a circular argument. It's illogical. But that circular argument and that decision lasts until 2001. It's not challenged until 2001 when its falsity is exposed. But by then, that decision has become a super precedent. It's cited in the US, in Canada, Australia, New Zealand, uh, South Africa, continental Europe, to disenfranchise a generation of trans people. Ewan's case is the tipping point. Before Ewan, self-identification, affirmative medical care, correction of birth certificates, absolute legal equality. After Ewan, all legal rights removed, social exclusion, a brutal medical regime that includes compulsory sterilization. Trans people from 1970 until 1996, when employment rights are regained, are socially excluded and subject to the most horrific forms of medical treatment and uh, uh, legal abjection. A generation of trans people lose their lives because of Ewan's case. And not only that generation of trans people, but still today, we're fighting for trans equality that was lost back in 1967. And I wanted to talk a bit about the significance of the birth certificate, because I think as a cis person, I had never really considered this, that it would be, it would matter. But you um, describe and explain extremely well in the book why it's so, why it was so important to be able to change your sex and your birth certificate. We've seen it so far with the case of um, April and Ewan to do with inheritance and marriage, but there are other situations as well in which it's really important to have your correct sex on your birth certificate. Yes, well, in the UK, um, we don't have a, a document of identification, a formal document of identification. We did have for a little while, uh, during the Second World War and in the aftermath um, uh, of it, I, I still have my own um, identity card that was issued at that point, but then that ceased. So the standard practice um, uh, was and is uh, to ensure someone's identity for purposes of employment and insurance and so forth by asking people to produce their birth certificate. So the birth certificate stands in the place of um, a legal identity card in the UK. If you have the wrong sex on your birth certificate, then you're automatically outed 
every time you try to go for a job that has pension rights or insurance contributions. And so a whole generation of trans people were pushed to the margins of society. Not only did they have no employment rights anymore, uh, nor could they marry or adopt if they were sent, uh, if they couldn't pay their car parking fines um, and, had, and received a custodial sentence, then they were sent to the wrong sex prison where trans women were raped without it counting as rape, or because their birth certificate had the wrong marker on it. Previously, it was really very simple. If someone was trans, then it was accepted that an error, an understandable and reasonable error had been made in identifying their sex at birth, and it was corrected. Now, that is no longer the case. Um, and so trans people are still suffering from this uh, inequity. It's possible now to go through a long bureaucratic process, get a gender recognition certificate, and that certificate will uh, entitle you to have a pretend birth certificate, what looks like a birth certificate, but it's got your, um, uh, your proper uh, sex on it. But in fact, it is just a pretend one. The real, the natal birth certificate is still on file and it's the natal birth certificate that still defines you. So the Gender Recognition Act was created to list all of the exclusions uh, from society that trans people are still subject to, which of course includes inheritance of primogenitor title. And the judge in April's case decides that he's going to ignore the precedent that was set by Ewan's case, that the sex test which prioritised uh, the psychological sex, the self-determined psychological sex um, of the person, as the, that's the most important. And he decides that's not, he's not going to adopt that at all. Because is, is there an alternative version of history in which, had he been a more compassionate or whatever word you want to use, intelligent man, he might have incorporated it, but he deliberately chose to not only ignore it, but then bury it so that it couldn't be used by April and subsequent trans people. Judges have a choice, you know, uh, they have what's called technically a margin of appreciation as to whether they make what's called a narrow judgment based strictly on the facts of the law or whether they um, uh, make a broad judgment based on you know, ethical principles and what the law should do in human circumstances. And the judge, Lord Ormrod, had every opportunity. He knew about the precedent with Ewan. Uh, he knew that the same medical opinion that had been supported by the decision in Ewan's case, they were the same doctors appearing for April. Same people saying the same thing. For Ewan, it's accepted. For April, the judge decides, no, we're not accepting that. And he makes this extremely narrow decision. His argument is uh, fallacious, absolutely fallacious. It's, it's called a marshmallow. You know, it looks solid on the outside, but there's nothing inside. Um, uh, but nevertheless, it's influential and becomes a super precedent. In the alternative history, Lord Ormrod would have said, as was said in 1996 by the European Court of Justice, society has to judge people as they actually are in their lived circumstances. There is no way in which 
we can think about April as being anything other than female. And therefore, we have to accept that an inevitable, unavoidable mistake was made assigning her male at birth, but she is, in every material way, female. And that, that leads me on to the question that I wanted to ask you next, because, as you say, in Ewan's lived circumstances and experience, and in his community, which he then returned to after he won the case, he was there was no question that he was anything other than a man. Anyone who knew him was treated by him as a doctor or uh, any of the tenants that he grew up around um, as a child, no one would be in doubt that um, to speak to him, to interact with him, to be treated by him as a patient, he was a man. So could you talk a bit about what happens to Ewan after this case later in life? Yes, it damages Ewan um, uh, terribly. You know, he's always sought to keep himself out of the public eye. He's already, we can imagine, uh, been dealing with complex emotional feelings uh, from this difficult childhood experiences that he had on the one hand, terrific support, and on the other hand, appalling abuse. Um, and uh, now he starts to exhibit the signs of uh, what we would think of now as being um, complex post-traumatic stress syndrome. Uh, helplessness, anger, despair, grief, loneliness, a huge difficulty in making personal connections. His temper became short. It was um, easy to get into his bad books without necessarily uh, knowing why. Uh, it was, um, he was scared really, uh, or had difficulty with uh, uh, social engagement. You know, he was happiest really back at Brooks with uh, Patty, happiest out of the public eye. He becomes obsessively religious. He falls to his knees in the fields and prays to his soul because, of course, he's, you know, knows what he's done. He's committed perjury. He has this deeply inbred sense of honour that he's been forced to compromise. He knows that he's presented falsified medical evidence to, to the court. He knows that that is gross professional misconduct. He knows he's got away with it. But still, his sense of honour makes him voluntarily deregister himself as a doctor. So from then on, he's no longer the doctor. So it, it was traumatic. It damaged him thereafter. It made him scared of people. It made him worried about social interactions. Eventually, he writes a, a little book of memoirs called The Old Days. And in it, he makes no mention either of the court case or of the circumstances that led up to it. I, can't, I wanted to ask you a bit about the memoirs as well, just before we we head back into the present, because I, it struck me that that was a slightly more hopeful note to end on, that you write uh, in the book about how his, in writing his memoirs and not mentioning anything about uh, any of the... Um, his his visits to Europe to um, see doctors who provided him with testosterone, anything about the case, uh, presenting his story as just one of a boy who grew up and turned into a man. 
there's something um, empowering about that. It felt like he was reclaiming his narrative. No, very much so. I think that's one of the huge strengths is that you can go through all of these both glorious and absolutely terrible things. And at the end, he says, this is where I stand. This is who I am. And I shall declare who I am, not you or anyone else. It's not up to you to ask me. It's up to me to tell you. Mm. And as far as I'm concerned, I am and always have been male. And this is my life. And he does that with great determination. In a second little slender volume about his dance team, Dances of Don, whenever he comes to newspaper reports, he changes them to read he rather than she. Yeah, it's very affirming. And I think this is where we get this sudden sense of modernity, where trans people are now saying, no one has the right to determine the identity of another person beyond that person themselves. It's their fundamental, absolute human right that everyone has is that of self-identity and self-determination. And Ewan said that. If you could bring back a memento from 1967, from this terrible and extraordinary story, what would you like to bring back? Oh, I want Ewan's diaries and letters and address book because, you know, there were none left, uh, hardly anything at all. And I hope that in them I'm going to find that he wasn't completely isolated as a trans person. I hope I'm going to find that he knew other trans men, that he had a community um, that he didn't talk about with anyone else, that he could go somewhere where he could feel emotionally absolutely safe, emotionally understood. So the memento I'd like to bring back is some evidence that Ewan had community, because community is absolutely crucial for all people who are parts of uh, marginalised and minority groups. Absolutely. Zoe, thank you so much for being our guest today on Travels Through Time. It's been such a fascinating discussion and I've enjoyed every moment of it just as much as I enjoyed reading the book. So thank you. Thank you very much, Artemis. Pleasure. That was me, Artemis Irvin, speaking to Zoe Playden about the year 1967 and the life of Ewan Forbes. As ever, you'll be able to find more information about this episode and any of our other episodes on our website, which is tttpodcast.com. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week.